0: Hi guys, hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you are a new listener, you're very welcome. My name is Dr. Kira Kelly. I'm a medical doctor based in Galway in Ireland, specializing in public health medicine. And for those who are regular listeners, you know who I am and where to find me um, at the Irish Balance on Instagram. Um, today, I am so delighted to be joined by Maura Trasamy-Kialik, who is a fully accredited Sport Ireland Institute sport and exercise psychologist, bilingual television and radio presenter with RTE, TG 4 and News Talk and also a current medical student and a Galway gal as well. So I'm so excited and grateful to have Maura Trasa on the podcast today. We're going to be chatting about her experience in medicine so far which I know is something you guys are really keen to hear more about um, psychology and also sports and mental health. So welcome Maura Trassa, how are you doing?
1: Uh, Great, that makes me sound much more impressive than I am. The (laughs) most important thing, obviously, is Galway, (laughs) girls.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm totally converted. Dublin raised, but Galway, Galway in the heart. Like, it gets into under your skin, really, doesn't it?
1: I think it's due to all the damp weather. I just think the dampness gets into you. But along with that dampness comes (laughs) growth. For Galway and wind and bad weather and walking on the prom with the weather just beating you in the face. It's great. Yes,
0: (laughs) that was me this morning. I went for a walk down to South Park and the assault by the wind and the rain. It was, but I'm awake now, so it's fine. Exactly. Galway makes
1: me feel alive.
0: It does. It does. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'd love if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background um, in 10 words or less, no, I'm only really joking. Um, but just in your in your own words would be great, just so people kind of know um, where you're coming from and I suppose what's brought you to where you are today.
1: Um, okay, um, I grew up in a small little beautiful part of Connemara called On It's about 26 mm. miles west of Galway City to people who aren't familiar, though I think most Irish people are because it's where a lot mm. of people go in the summertime when they went off to the Gaelic, to learn a bit of Gaelic. So mm-hmm. I grew up speaking Irish with my family, n- normal run-of-the-mill family, three kids, two parents, went to school in Cairo, went to, the first time I went to college, went to NUI Galway, studied psychology and Irish there, did a higher diploma in applied communications, that somehow led me into Radio of on work experience and then mm. typical, I just didn't leave, so <laughs> I stayed <laughs> there for about um kind of two years going in and out the door and revolving contracts. And then I got a job in TG TGCAD and kind of just moved over the road from there, began working in the newsroom there. And I really enjoyed that. And I began working a lot under Jim Fahey, people might remember him. He was the Western editor in Galway at the time and Teresa Mannion. So I got loads of great experience from them. And I began working a little bit more and more for RTE and then I moved to Dublin to work in the newsroom in RTE for Luke MOOC and for news. And I worked a lot in Gaelic Games Programme, which is really my real love. You know, I mean, I started off mm. working in news and current affairs and while I really enjoyed it, for me, sport was my love. But it took me a while to build up the confidence to do it, I think, and also actually be allowed to do it. You know, let's call mm. a spade a spade. I had to fight and teach a cat in the newsroom to be allowed to do a bit of sport, but I got my way in the end. Mm. And um, <laughs> Did a bit of working as a GA reporter as well in RTE, working with um, the infamous and possibly the most um, desired man in Ireland, Marty Morrissey. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> did a bit of that, and that was great fun, hard work, but great fun. And but I always knew, even though I loved the broadcasting and everything, there was something in me that wasn't—I don't know—fulfilled is the right word. There was something mm. I think I wanted to return to the psychology roots, but I was never sure how. I knew I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. I knew that wasn't for me. I knew things like occupational psychology and you know counselling psychology wouldn't be for me. But I knew I loved sport and that mm. kind of stuff. So eventually, it became obvious to me after a few years on the road that maybe I should be look towards sport and exercise psychology. And there was a masters in UL which I applied for and I got in and I worked there under doctors Pike mcintyre mark campbell and matthew herring and i got mm. did my master's degree with that and i love that that opened up a whole new life for me because all of a sudden i suddenly realized that actually this probably was my calling to begin with which is working with people helping mm. them do better dealing with performance pressure focus all that kind of stuff and also helping not just athletes but normal people like you and me to keep us mm. motivated to move it's good for our health good for our mental health and That was what I really loved, you know, and um, Mm. it just took me a while. I'm a bit slow on the uptake (laughs) (laughs) to figure out that that's what I loved. So after really deciding that's what I wanted to do, I then went and I worked towards my Irish Sport Institute accreditation, which takes a long time, but it's worth doing because it means you're accredited and you're qualified because people forget sometimes with sports psychology. It's not just about the things like goal setting and better performance. It's also about seeing mental health red flags and helping people through difficult Mm. life junctures and that kind of stuff. So I did that and that was great. And there was still a little bit of an itch and I was going to do a PhD in sports psychology. That was actually the original plan. But then actually, while I was wandering around, I began talking to some graduate entry medical students and I was like, that's really fascinating. And then the biggest realisation of all came to me was that inside it all, I'm a complete dork. Like I love learning. (laughs) I love learning. And I suddenly realised doing medicine you're learning for life and mm. you're learning really, really practical, useful things. And I felt like throughout my 20s and I was working with Luke and in the newsroom and that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a good job and it's important in its own way. But I kind of felt like, you know, if Luke fell off the air tonight, who'd miss it? Or, you mm-hmm. know, did we need it? And mm-hmm. I felt whereas being a doctor, you're very needed. And I just felt that I just wanted to be a bit more practical. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, have a career that would make a difference to people so that even if you had a bad day at work and I'm, I'm, I know medicine is not easy and sports psychology isn't easy either that mm. I can still come home with an evening and close the door knowing I've made even if it's only a small difference that I've made a difference somewhere and I think that's really good for your own kind of internal motivations to keep you going gets you up out of bed in the morning knowing that you know you have a purpose to your day and mm-hmm. maybe, like I said, I am flown the uptake, and it took me a long time to realize mm-hmm. that my purpose probably never was journalism. My purpose mm-hmm. was talking to people and helping people out. And I found fueled that for a while via journalism, but actually mm-hmm. turns out psychology and medicine and healthcare. And funnily enough, way back when I remember in secondary school, we were doing, you know, those kind of forms and you're trying to figure out what it is you wanted to be when you grew up. And mm-hmm. mine was communications and actually. Social care and work came up, and I was like, Oh, I know I'm not cut out for that, and I know I am, not but actually, mm. probably what I was cut out for was maybe being that doctor, hopefully, that passed my exams, mm. being that GP who listens to people, and mm-hmm. that's my plan, hopefully. When I eventually grow yeah. up, that's what I really want. When <laughs> I get to be yeah. a GP who focuses the whole thing on of... health and exercise and well being. Mm.
0: Mm. I love that. When I grow up, I feel like that's something I say to myself all the time. When I was 12, I saw 18 as grown up, when I was 18, I saw mid-20s has grown up now I'm 29 I'm like I still feel like I'm 12 years old no and I'm in my
1: 30s and I feel if anything more light and immature in the best possible way than I did in my 20s I think I grew up far too fast in my early 20s and I realized there were just the wrong things to be chasing so it's Mm. no on the uptake but you know never too late
0: (laughs) (laughs) never too late you did a lot very early on really didn't you like it was it sounds like it was so first of all, I suppose what I'd love to ask you about is, is why you chose psychology and Irish as well, but psychology in particular in the first place. That's something I was always interested in as well. And similar to you, I kind of thought about journalism and had decided kind of early on it wasn't for me. And I was looking towards psychology or psychiatry and then ended up kind of going for medicine and in, in, in that frame of mind. But um, why psychology? What drew you yeah, in about that?
1: I, I just had an interest in it. I, I just loved trying to figure out the mind and as any psychologist or psychiatrist or counselor or anybody who works in that kind of field be listening to this will know that Mm. we know a lot less about the mind than what we do know about it and it's just so fascinating and it's so many different facets to it that you could go off in so many different fields and it also meant that you were kind of kicking the decision can down the road for three years in that Mm -hmm. you know at 17 or 18 i kind of knew what I didn't want to do, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I actually, funnily enough, I was quite young doing my leaning Cert. I just turned 17. And okay, I remember yeah. applying, applying as well through UCAS and getting accepted for a full psychology degree in Coleraine. And mm. thinking, oh, that's far too far away. Oh, God, no, I couldn't be doing that. So mm. thankfully, I got into the psychology stream then in NUI in Galway, which was great. So but again, maybe because I was the eldest in my family, nobody had me gone to college I didn't mm-hmm. really understand the college experience. I went for the unknown and the known. So I did, mm. I took the psychology degree with the Gaelja as the cup, knowing that yeah. psychology turns out to be a pile of poo, at least. Yeah. I, I know I can speak Irish well, and sure, I learned the literature off, you know, and that would that yeah. be an option B. So I think it was holding on to what was safe. And actually, possibly that's probably why i fell into communications and media as well i mean people see it as a very dynamic career and involves a lot of moving around and being independent and mm. in general it does but not if you live in connemara where you can have a very safe existence working for radio and the and TG cahar never going beyond Galway city which is great if that's what you want and at that young age that probably is what i needed and wanted i wasn't ready for the big bad world and then kind of once i decided i was ready for the big bad world That's when I kind of realized, oh, maybe news and current affairs is not my bag. Because I used to I I used to hate getting yelled at by press people. Mm. I I used to I used to like struggle to sleep at night with the stress of, you know, people saying she got this wrong. She didn't say this right. And then in Mm. hindsight, I realized it's not that I got it wrong. But you have a minute and a half for a report and you leave some details out. And for some people at home, that detail could be very important, you know, that kind of thing. So it wasn't for me. And actually, I carried that stress over to sports, sports broadcasting as well. Like when I used to do reports. For the Sunday game, I mean that mm. program—it's like, such a monster, and it, it's a real it honor to oh be honest. Oh my God, it is! Yeah. Oh my absolutely. God, when I knew my report reporters, Cal would say, and "Now this, watching this game for us was more traumatic." <laughs> I used to get up and hide in the bathroom oh god until the report was over and i used to turn off my phone oh no (laughs) No, evidently i was not for that kind of thing now i've grown a thicker skin which you have to when you work like on off the ball but again off the ball gives you more time like you'd be on air like at half time and matches and stuff and you'd be Mm. chatting to legends like tommy welch and stuff and really what i'm doing is i'm getting their information out of them nobody Mm -hmm. at home cares what i think and that mm-hmm. definitely helps me sleep easier. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. It's funny actually. It's doing so the working in public health, obviously part of part of our job as doctors, particularly in public health, is around communication and advocacy. And it's it's a really important competency that we need to build through our training. And the last minute pressured element of it, and that's just me talking about radio interviews. Like I've done, I've probably done 20 or 30 this year with Midwest Radio or iRadio or various like West radio stations. And um, I've, I've gotten very comfortable in it now for the most part, but even still, it's last minute, like yet yeah, you're kind of second guessing yourself all the time. Did you say it right? Did you not say it right? And I can never listen to it back. Like, so I, I can very much relate to that. Now, obviously not TV is a different kettle of fish. So I think that being able to withstand that pressure is so impressive.
1: Yeah, it is pressure. And I, I kind of didn't, because it was my normal from such a young age, I mm. didn't actually realize that. It is a massive pressure, like the six one goes on air at six one unless there's a catastrophic you yeah. know, telecommunications disaster or something. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just hand in your report at three yeah. minutes past six. because That's when it was done or at seven o'clock yeah. or at nine. So I got very used to very quickly to being organized, being punctual, getting my stuff together to have it on time and sometimes accepting it's not perfect, but it's going to have to do because this is the time it has to be in. So mm-hmm. to this day, I struggle with people who cannot be on time. Yeah. So this day, like I struggle with, when you're doing group projects with people, and we've laid down a deadline, and I would be, I, you know, if the deadline to have it in is on a Friday, I'll try yeah. to have it done on a Wednesday so that we have the Thursday to go over it and have it in. So there's no mm-hmm. problems, and people funnily enough normal people don't operate this way <laughs> i really struggle with this i'm always on time like so if something starts at yeah. 11 i will be there at quarter to 11 and if i can't mm-hmm. be there at quarter to 11 because there's been traffic or somebody's delayed me i will have such huge anxiety <laughs> and it comes from the oh my god where is that package where is it where is it and there yeah. is nothing more heart-wrenching and squeezing your heart and stomach than Say, if your slot on the 6 1 was, say, the sports bulletin, we might be coming on air at 20 to 7, and you're waiting yeah. for a game to finish. Sometimes a game might finish at half six. Yeah, I remember this. This is a big stress, or even worse, the stresses of the summertime when mm. uh, the nine o'clock news, if anybody listening to this, if you're watching out for the nine o'clock news of a Saturday night, it's never at nine o'clock. So you would yeah. you would have to ring up the newsroom and you would ask what time is the nine, which sounds completely wrong, but it would be like a 10 to nine, 20 past nine, whatever. And it was always mm. earlier when there was a late evening game on. So you'd yeah. have your script kind of done. And then, of course, somebody get a last minute goal and you had to change everything. And literally, sometimes you'd only have four minutes to get that package
0: to air. Oh, my gosh. And nobody like, at
1: home would know the stress to this. And no. you'd be there in palpitations you know sweat going yeah. down your back you know, <laughs> looking and thinking can anybody please hand me a whiskey <laughs> yes <definitely. laughs> and you were doing this day in day out and it's a it's a huge pressure that people don't realize and then I kind of found myself thinking why am I putting this pressure on myself it's not life or death
0: mm-hmm. and it was a yeah. big
1: kind of existential crisis in my life and I realized like mm. no you know p- you don't need the stress in your life it's not healthy some people thrive on it but evidently I didn't yeah. So I was like, OK, time to pivot in life and yeah. that's what I did. I just went into the really unstressful life of medicine.
0: Um, did you have like obviously did you have a. Yeah, exactly. God, we'll talk about that. Um, did you have a favorite part of your work in media or. Oh, yeah, yeah, Definitely.
1: loads of it. I-, I loved the traveling around, meeting new people, seeing new things, being in different places. And especially when I got to, like and the beauty of media is there is camaraderie. Like when I was in News and Current Affairs, there was camaraderie between the political pack. You know, you got to know people all over the country. It meant you were never stuck like that kind of way. And mm-hmm. I love the camaraderie as well in sport and sports and actually news and sports media. You got front row seats at massive mm-hmm. events that everyone else at home only got to watch in their TV. Like I got to go over to Windsor alongside Michael D. Higgins when he went to visit the Queen and that historic visit a few oh years my God. ago that's yeah and got, exactly and I was broadcasting in Windsor they were there like that's that's, that's incredible that nobody yep. gets you yeah. know um, I got to go like I've seen great boxing matches I've seen you know all front rows at All-Ireland finals I've spoken mm-hmm. to managers just after they've won an All-Ireland or after they've lost one I got to go out to the Golan Heights with the Irish Army and see the work they're doing as part of their peacekeeping work with the UN you know mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. so that's really really cool and they are experiences that nobody else is ever going to have and for Mm -hmm. that it was great but even like the minutiae of what people call the minutiae the bread and butter days you got to go to court and like people like Mm. most people don't understand how court works you Mm -hmm. know and Mm. that kind of thing and I got to be in Leinster House and I got you know there are things that people don't have access to and I suppose media and journalists are there to kind of give you a window into that and that's a position of privilege and that's really cool and you just get to chat to people all day long. And I love that. Um, I just like to, learning about
0: people. You get to meet the personality of Ireland, really, don't you? You get such you a flavour for the different walks of life and, and, and different. Um, I mean, some of those experiences are absolutely incredible. It is like it's it's an inside view, really.
1: Yeah, it is. just amazing. get to meet, you know, normal people who are struggling, say, with chronic illness and waiting for a medical card. And you might do a mm-hmm. report on that. And mm-hmm. that might help them maybe. You know, mm. Get the attention that they're looking for from the HSE or maybe push their cause along. You get to do, you know, box pops of people outside. You know, what's your latest opinion on whatever thing the news of the day is? And you can meet really great characters just by doing that as well. You know, so they, yeah. they were really, I I'd hate for people to think media is not a good career. It can be, but it's mm. precarious. Uh, unless you're lucky enough to get an RTE job, which I did, you won't be very mm. well paid, you'll work very long hours, you, mo- you mm. won't probably won't have a pension. There's a lot of things wrong with it at the moment, and I hope they change. But there's a lot of great things about it as well. And one of them is is that you get to meet the, I suppose, the movers and shakers of Irish life. You mm. get to see how decisions are made. You, and you kind of learn as well that, you know, politicians are human too, decision makers yeah. are human. And nothing is black and white. So when you see people protesting, you know, about a certain decision and stuff, I like to think I've learned enough now to realize there's probably a reasoning behind this. So I I think it's made me a bit more maybe compassionate to how Mm. things are made. But also, on the other hand, sometimes it just leaves as well that I have very little patience for things that make no sense. Because I yeah. know it can change when the will is there, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> that, that makes absolute sense, definitely. And would you have preferred TV or radio or was there a difference between the two for you in terms of your experience?
1: There is a difference, definitely. And I've learned, I think I I love live, be it live radio or live TV. Uh, and I love, hmm. there's an adrenaline rush to it and there's yeah. a, we have to do it now and that's it. So there's not an expectation for it to be perfect, but there's an expectation for you to think on your feet. And so, like, funnily enough, and then they're very different when it comes to sports media. Like, so sports media, TV is definitely easier than radio because you have your own cordoned off area. People bring your guests to you. There's Mm. a floor manager who's looking out for you and minding you. And there's a script and it's very much regimented. And, you know, there's sponsorship involved. And, you know, managers know they have to do the TV interview. They must come over to Air Sports and talk to me. Compare that to radio when you're there on your own. You're fighting out your own space in the press pack. You're trying to find your groove. And at the end of the day, you are in the minority. You are a girl. And mm. enough, some managers do see this and they will make extra time for you. Others will take advantage of it and say, that's an issue I don't have to do because I, I haven't seen her gone by that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, Whereas a lot more. I would radio broadcasting. It's improving, um, but definitely pitch side access and tunneling and stuff. It's still very difficult for a woman. And there's a reason why mm. there's more men than women there. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing a tweet you did about that recently. I don't know if it was, was it a, the premier? I, just, I know it's not, it wasn't the same role, but do you remember the, it was a recent premiership game where one of the players essentially like tried to kind of almost corral the um, female lineswoman. Do you remember that? Oh, that was yeah, do, enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you you posted a few tweets about it. I remember almost like wanting to like screenshot them all and just share them and be like, you go girl. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, yeah
1: there's a reason why like it it is a masculine culture and you know what? there's nothing wrong with that um and i hate for people to think she hates men i don't hate men i'm a big Mm. fan of men i'm (laughs) a big champion of men we love men (laughs) yeah oh i love men and most of my work is to do with men and that kind of stuff but i think at the same time for it to move on now men you know sound men have to realize that they're not at fault at this it's not their fault the world is this way but it is their fault if they don't do something about it and that comes back very very simply to you know when you're on a sideline trying to get an interview and for example the male journalist and I don't even think they do it on purpose they will pile mm. around a manager and me, there with my short t-rex arms can't yeah. get in with my <laughs> microphone you know that kind of way yeah and you get pushed about of it that way and I, I'm not saying it's done on purpose at all mm. but I think it's time now. and that's just one small example mm. but men will use and they don't even realize they're doing it they have such an advantage already in the sports world that they need mm. if they want to move things on now they need to open up the door for other people other minorities be that women gay people people of color because we just don't exist yet in ireland we're getting there and but part of the reason is that we're not in there is because we haven't been welcomed yeah that has to change
0: absolutely i think this year has been one it's been a, a a roller coaster of a year for many reasons but it has forced the world i think to look at the social and racial injustices that are you know built into society and which is so wrong and i think it's like you said there it's not enough just to be aware of it like people need to be actively you know doing their best to be against us and to be figuring out ways to combat us collectively you know whether you know you're in a position of privilege or you're at the position not in privilege you know particularly for those who like you say whether it's men or or white people that we acknowledge this privilege and try and um use that privilege for the better does that make sense that totally in, makes sense yeah, yeah like yeah. I mean
1: it's not my fault or your fault that we were born white mm. and for the of a better phrase affluent compared to most people in the world yeah. and that's fine that's the way we were born white. but I think we need to acknowledge it that that helped us into our position yeah uh, that we need to help other people like I've kind of realized mm. looking around my classroom now for example there's a lot mm. of people from all over the world there are loads of different mm. colors creeds genders all that kind of mm. thing mm. but the common denominator still, I find, for people studying medicine, for example, is having a bit of money. And the only yeah. reason I could afford to do was I worked for 10 years. So actually... Even looking at that as an example, there's still not many avenues for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, mm-hmm. to careers that involve a lot of time and effort and money like medicine, law, journalism. Yeah. Like my big fear in journalism in particular is the way things are going because the wages are so poor and people have so few kind of job opportunities in that now that the mm. way things are going that within maybe five, 10 years, the only journalists, new journalists are going to have in the country are going to be the children of middle class parents already living in Dublin because yeah. The wages people are making now you couldn't afford to move to dublin and that's unfortunately if you want to work in journalism that's where it's at really i mean yeah. to a mini extent you could say galway maybe waterford different sports broadcasting but if you want to get into the cut and thrust a bit you want to be doing news current affairs politics you have to be in dublin to do it yeah to to that level if that's what you want to do you know but mm-hmm. people can't afford that now except maybe the fiachers whose dad is a dentist and mom works in it and they yeah. happen to live in Dublin. And that's a big worry. And I think mm. that's the next big inequality as well. You know that we have to acknowledge that basically how much money you have in your pocket affects your life really. 100 percent. It affects your career. And uh, there's not, it's not enough now for men to say, sure, it's not my fault. We know it's not your fault, but yeah, time to step up now and see what we can do to yeah. change it.
0: Absolutely. Um I was gonna ask you next about the sport psychology and sport and mental health, but I think given you've mentioned medicine, maybe we'll chat about that first and we'll talk about sport and mental health after. Um sure. so you went you went back to post grad medicine, obviously yes. in it's UL, is it?
1: uh no I'm doing it in the Royal College of Surgeons
0: oh sorry we did talk when you yeah. were saying you've seen postgrad medical students yes, in UL that was it when sorry I, yeah when,
1: yeah when I was doing my master's in sports like in UL you mm-hmm. know when you when you're on when you're on the ring, ring about as much as I have you soon go to every university in Ireland yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: so, my yeah. bad because you did mention RCSI and then I got caught with UL when you were chatting about it there
1: um yes I'm in RCSI yeah so I'm in third year of a four-year graduate entry degree so that was a bit of a pivot so I had to sit the dreaded GAMSAT exam and if you've Mm -hmm. never heard of it if you want to stay awake at night and you need insomnia just google GAMSAT and you'll see (laughs) I mean holy mary mother of god if there is a worse exam I've yet to come across it and me the egypt decided oh sure I'll get into this when I didn't Mm. even do any science subjects for my leaving cert so I had to really really cram on I suppose the basics of science and that kind of stuff but thankfully Mm -hmm. I sat the exam And I got the marks to get into the Royal College of Surgeons. So that was a few years ago. So now Mm -hmm. I'm in third year. And actually this year is great fun because it's proper medicine. You know, you're out dealing with patients, you're dealing with kids. I've done pediatrics already. I'm doing uh, obstetrics and gynecology at the moment. I love it. And it's Mm -hmm. just nice that I'm not sitting in a classroom all the time. I mean, we were doing a bit of clinical experience in first and second year, but obviously not to this extent. And uh, it's reinforced that I did the right thing, definitely, because I'm enjoying every day, even the days that are hard. You enjoy mm. it, so I think that's a good sign. I hope
0: <laughs> that's definitely a good sign, absolutely. I suppose, yeah, if people ask me about the GAMSAT quite a lot, and, and for those wondering, the HPAD is the aptitude exam that you do for undergrad medicine, but the GAMSAT is the one that you have to do for postgrad medicine, and it's a bit of yes. a simplistic way to put it, but basically, um, it's a key part of the application process. So, I, I have no inside knowledge on the GAMSAT, I can talk about the HPAD. Um, I probably shouldn't because it's a whole other podcast and it makes me angry. <laughs> but the GAMSAT, it seems to, there's, there's more to it. Am I right in saying that? I don't oh know. My God, I haven't yes. done it. But there yeah, there's a
1: lot more to it. And the reason yeah. I know this is that when I decided I was going to do medicine, I decided to go hard or go home. So I decided mm-hmm. I was going to hedge my bets. And I also applied for mature entry as well in a few colleges to get in. So yeah. I had to sit H-pat as well.
0: Ah, uh, so you've done both. OK.
1: Yes. Now, I threw all my eggs into the GAMSAT basket because I'd been kind of told, Look, you know, the mature entry has got so much more than your HPAT mark. I mean, just don't do terribly at it. And really, it's more about your CV and your life experience and how you can mm. express. So I decided, right, I'm not going to study HPAT at all. It is what it is. I just don't have the time to do both. Yeah. So definitely, there is a massive difference. To me, HPAT felt, now, I mean, people who sat HPAT very, very seriously might totally disagree with me, but mm. based on my experience at GAMSAT, to me, HPAT felt like a little warm-up lap before you started GAMSAT. Oh wow. okay. now I had the advantage obviously of working in media and being good at communications and reading and writing, which is a mm. big component of HPAT. And I know some people would not have a natural aptitude toward that, mm. which I, I know I do, which mm. definitely helped. Um and I remember what I call the shape section. I was like, This makes oh, yeah. no <laughs> sense to me whatsoever. I don't understand it. There is no pattern, this is insane. And mm. I just I remember taking ccc all the way down. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> I just I can't, even if I try to reason it out, I'm gonna do worse. Yes. Mm. And um I just forgot about it and i still did fairly decently in it Mm. now i know that's not everyone's experience but for me it's because i think i had the 10 years of reading and writing experience to a very high level behind me which Mm. helped me with that and the fact that i'd also been studying for gamsat so gamsat Mm. has a section there's one section where it's kind of reading comprehension and you might get a cartoon you might get a piece of philosophy you might get a newspaper article and you have to guess the next best answer you know a b c Mm. e and then the people, the part that people really struggle with GAMSAT is section two, which is probably the section that got me into college, which mm. is you have to write two critical essays uh, in the space of an hour, which is tough going.
0: That's tough going. That's it's really, really tough, tough going. going. And like yeah. I did
1: that for a living every day where I presented both sides and, you know, did a roundup at the end of a news report. And I still found that mm. hard. Mm. And it's based on quotes. There's, you get five quotes, basically, and you have to decide what the theme of these quotes are. And you have to write your critical essay based on that. And it's very wow. high-polluting themes like you know, euthanasia and healthcare. You know, you know, access oh, well, yeah. to medicine, neutrality. Is it an outdated concept? They're really now. You can practice it. You can write up a few essays mm-hmm. and practice yourself and that kind of thing. And that definitely helps. And then you take a break and you have your lunch and then you go into the beast that is Section Three, which is, I think, 120 mad science questions, and they're done in a way. That apparently, uh, Acer will argue. They will say, technically, you've never had to study any kind of science in this because you could, you should be able to reason it out based on the pictures and the diagrams. I was like, I remember. Should I told, should be Jesus. Yeah, you might if you had a whole day at it and you weren't constrained mm. with time. But mm. I remember coming home and taking you to the bed after it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so tired after it, and um, oh, I can imagine. And the way it's done, nobody knows how well you've done or how poorly you've done. Mm. and um, I was just I was looking up I got the marks to get me in and thankfully well I think I think I scored a 59 in it and actually I saw this year at the Royal College of Surgeons i gone up to 60 or 61 mm. and uh, so yeah I'm glad I got in a few years ago. yeah God, but it, it was definitely the essay writing that pushed me over the line okay absolutely but it's a beast of an exam it is horrible it is all day it's just so stressful and you can prepare I think until this time next year every day take a year off work to prepare mm. and I still think it's look of the day it's mm. hard. It's mm. really, really, really hard. Um, I've yet, And again, I started a medical degree with no science background and I still found GAMSAT at the top of the exam so far.
0: Wow. That's because I remember you and I spoke a little bit about it on Instagram, just through DMs and stuff, because someone had asked me in a Q and a about the HP, or the GAMSAT and I was like, look, I, I don't know. And that we were just chatting about it. For me with the HPAT, I went into it blind the first time around because I was naive and bought into this. It's an aptitude. And if you're meant to do well, you'll do well, which... To be honest, like the, obviously, as you said, there's some that will my dad always used to say he's like you're going to have people who go in and they'll do well. And it's just it's, it is the aptitude. He's like, but we need to understand, is there a way for it not to beat the system? But like, is there a way for you to practice and study first? So yes. I did it a second time round and went up by like 25 points because I did a course. I did two courses, actually, an online question bank and a course in Dublin. And again, that comes back to having the privilege to be able to pay for those things and take yes. the time to do it. Um which is, you know, something I, I don't take for granted. So for me, I, I I just but I don't necessarily think the HPAT was the, is the best way to decide no. is someone suited for medicine. No. Um it I definitely don't see yeah.
1: how HPAT um or even okay, gamset you could argue a bit because you get to write a critical essay which shows yeah. a bit of personality. You could argue mm. and you're supposed to bring up your science knowledge to a point that you're not coming in completely green. Yeah. You could argue that, but I mean, mm. I still think that's a very, very, very weak argument after going through the experience because it didn't mm. prepare me in any way, shape or form mm. for college at all. Mm. Um, I really, really think that the only way to assess somebody's suitability for medicine, if I had my way, nobody would go in straight after school. I think mm. you should have to do a degree. You should possibly have to work for a year or two and then come back to it. Um, mm. Because I just think you're not mature enough at 17 or 18 to be dealing with some of the things you have to deal with in medicine. I just don't think you yeah. are. I know I wasn't. And there might be a rare 17 year old out there who might be, but mm. no. And I just don't think you have enough an understanding of yourself to be able to stand up for yourself because it can be quite a brutal profession. And yeah. you need to be able to say no to people You need to be able to put up boundaries and say, no, I'm going off to study now or no, I'm taking tomorrow off and that kind of thing. And I just don't yeah. think at 22, 23, when you're out working as an intern, that you're able for that. I don't think you are. because yeah. I, I certainly wasn't able for it when I was working in media it took me a long time mm-hmm. to unfind my own assertiveness and push back against people who were trying to get me to do things that weren't good for me so I definitely think if I had my way, I would say you should not go near medicine until you've worked for a few years, definitely. And mm. then you should be brought in based upon, I think, interviewing and how you sell yourself, and maybe putting together an application form showing your interest in it. And it shouldn't be about money either, because unfortunately, no, it shouldn't be like money. You're being asked, you know, can you afford to fund this? How are you going to fund it? Because they don't need, you know, they don't need to be bringing you in and then you having to drop out because you haven't got the shekels. You know, and graduate mm-hmm. entry is very expensive as well. It's much more expensive than undergraduate, which I don't think people realise as well. So mm-hmm. I think the mm-hmm. system has to be fixed in a way that it's more like you you do not have to be intelligent to be a doctor. You just mm-hmm. need to be willing to sit down with the books for hours on end like that's the end long and short of it. it is not quantum physics it is not learning to put a space shuttle into space <laughs> you know it is learning about how the body works and you know yourself kira there is no yeah. black or white answer in medicine you can't say this person will die next tuesday
0: you just no, have it's to. so great it's so great so, gray. so yeah. you're
1: learning off cues and you're learning off previous experience and research that says this is the most probable outcome we can all learn that if you decide to put your mind to it
0: Mm. I think for yeah it's funny I did a year of dietetics before medicine because I didn't get in with the H-Path the first time around I actually didn't put anything outside Dublin in as well because like you I just didn't feel ready to leave the nest and I have no regrets about that at all I just didn't put down Galway or Cork I would have gotten to Galway actually which is funny that I ended up I was always (laughs) going to find Galway but um, I just didn't feel ready to leave home um, at the time and again that speaks to the maturity so I did a year of dietetics first and I that was honestly one of the best things I could have done because I got a year of fun. I worked hard for that year, but I got a year of fun out of my system. And when I went into medicine, it was only a year, but I was twenty and there was just that little bit more maturity. Mm. Um I was ninety actually maybe I was nineteen. No, I think I was twenty. And it was just that small bit of a difference. And even still I loved the course but found it intensely stressful. And I'm a perfectionist anyway. And I've learned so much about myself through like through poor stress management and then through learning good stress management because of my poor stress management yes. um, and you aren't like it's I get to the end of my 20s now as I'm 29 and I'm a different person to the girl who started in the first year and I've managed to dress in a completely different way now like it's um, it is it's so different and I, I think there's a maturity that must be of such benefit to someone who's who is going into medicine a bit later and knows himself a bit better and knows how they work um or what they want from life as well I think that's that's key so I I agree with with a lot of the points you've said there
1: Um, yeah
0: yeah. sorry yeah no you continue
1: no no I was just saying that you know I just don't think like for example I'm an obstetrics rotation at the moment Mm. I just don't think 20 year old me would have been able to grasp now I'm sure there are 20 year olds out there who could and can and do grasp this but I'm not understood the devastation of maybe Mm. a 39 year old woman who's just been told, you know, she's had a miscarriage Mm. or, you know, the gravity of, you know, the worry relatives might have for their mother who's coming in for surgery for ovarian cancer, for example. Mm. I Mm. just don't think even then, even, you know, at that stage, at the age of 20, I'd experienced some death in my life, as I think you would at that age, you you know, somebody, you know, a relative or a friend will have passed on or whatever. But just things like that, I just don't think I would have had the emotional maturity to help people Mm. deal with their, you know, their emotional fears and their grief and that kind of stuff because Mm. I just didn't have it. And maybe there are people out there who would, but I know I didn't have it. And I don't think I would have understood the very worried parent who comes in because their child is coughing really loudly and they're convinced their child's at death's door and Mm. they don't understand when you tell them actually it's just croup. And I know it's very scary, Mm. but it's be fine. I don't Mm. think I would have understood that then. But now I'm a bit older, I have friends who have children. I have a nephew and when he was a baby, my God, if he looked sideways, I was convinced he was going to yeah. dead. So, yeah. you know, I just don't think that I would have had that maturity at that age.
0: No, I I totally agree with that. I think like when I think back now, so much of my communication skills really were learnt on the job as an intern. And then mm-hmm. as an SHO, I was honing them. But, you know, the way you're doing so much of your communication skills in an abstract as a medical student, you're doing it with dummies or you're doing it with fake patients or real patients who aren't sick on the day, but, you know, you're practicing on them and communication is half the battle as a doctor like it really is it's 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 a critical skill and it's not something that you get much real real life example like you try and do as many histories as you can and do as many exams as you can to practice that but mm-hmm. even still by the time you're a fully fledged intern so much of it is what you learn in that first year and it can be such baptism by fire because it's all real life and you you for the first time have proper clinical responsibility and you're given hard jobs like like sometimes sometimes you shouldn't be and that's sometimes the system but like you know delivering bad news or having a family meeting um particularly if you're on a surgical job that can sometimes you're the main communication point between Mm. a patient's family you know um or with with colleagues with nurses with allied health professionals um you know it, it so when i just think back now what you're saying there i totally agree so much of that key element of being a doctor i learned through my clinical training and actually feeds into public health now because we don't really deal with patients face to face like so I do a lot of cold calling of people because of let's say COVID-19 or contact tracing or previous to COVID infectious disease notifications and I need to investigate them or outbreaks and the communication is, is what's really key because no one can see my face there's no non-verbal cues yeah. um, and I think that that's definitely been Uh, I'm glad I'm in it now as a bit more of a mature doctor as opposed to going into it when I was kind of green at 24, just qualified, you know. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I totally agree. And like, I suppose that was if I didn't know my science, that was one place where I did have an advantage in that I worked as a communications professional. Mm. So that has taught me to read people's cues and I'm not saying I get it right all the time but I do know it's it's the area of the whole medical degree that I worry least about because I did it professionally for 10 years and and like I I stress less about it and actually funnily enough in I remember in first year exams god they were a nightmare for me because I was so Mm. new to it all but the Mm. one thing there was two exams that didn't stress me at all and that was the The practical osce exam before Christmas, and also the psychology exam, and I could see all the science heads. They were so freaked out by the psychology paper because it was it was abstract. Mm. You know, it was it was all areas of grey, and I was like, "Brilliant, let me flex my abstract muscles here." (laughs) You know, and it's just something that medical students really struggle with because the vast majority of them do come from a science background. You know, Mm. and Mm. they're learned that this is the answer and that's it. And yeah, that's really difficult and they've learned and they haven't honed the communication skills and they mightn't have enjoyed maybe creative writing classes or learning mm-hmm. English or Irish or languages or they might not even have they might have enjoyed it but they just didn't focus on it because they were so focused on getting into this degree so mm-hmm. that's been really tough for them but I mean I've no sympathy for them because I had to learn all the life sciences and <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it swings both ways doesn't it <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you've had some year with the pandemic as a medical student. I mean, your learning, I'm sure, has obviously totally changed. Mm. And you guys as well, I think, weren't you helping in the ICUs of our hospitals this year too?
1: yes we were so if you go way back in march i was based in Connolly hospital i was in second Mm. year and for anyone who does graduate entry they'll know second year is the year where you learn all about microbiology and pathology and all the things that can go wrong in the body and that kind of stuff so it was a really interesting year actually i remember i enjoyed it a lot but i remember that march day it was a really cold day Leo Varadkar did a speech from Washington mm, and we mm. were kind of all like, uh-oh, waiting. And then the following day we were called into a meeting and I remember all the students who weren't Irish were told, go home, book a one-way ticket, get out of here. We don't know when you're coming back. You won't oh, be wow. back, certainly before September. I remember thinking, wow, well, this pandemic is serious. And I did, I really don't think I grasped the seriousness of the pandemic until, you know, the heads of the college were standing in front of us saying, you know, mm. go home, book yeah. your one-way ticket, do not hang around. You do not want to be here alone, sick. You don't want your relatives to get Mm. sick without you. If they're going to get Mm. sick, get out of here. And they said it in a very kind way, but in a very firm way, you know, they were leaving no ambiguity, get out, which I think the Royal College of Surgeons did really well. They handled the pandemic so well in March when the whole world came crashing down, you know, they moved. People might remember they moved the final med exams forward by like eight weeks.
0: I remember hearing that.
1: Yeah. And (sighs) the stress on those poor students, like level best for them, they, You know, did as much coaching as they could for them. They were as kind as they could be. They they really pulled them over the line, you know, made sure they were out, ready to go as doctors, you know, and Mm. and at the same time, they didn't forget about us. They Mm. sent us all home. Everything went online more or less by the next day. We were just told just, you know, whatever lectures that you had scheduled for tomorrow, we apologize. We won't be able to teach them, but the notes are there. Just get through them. And then the following day, classes began showing up on Blackboard. Tutorials were held on Blackboard. And then so it was done really, really well wow. in all exams. That's like very impressive. And compared in fairness, because I, I I'd know people in other medical schools and it wasn't as seamless. Mm. Um just for whatever reason. Maybe they were bigger, maybe they had more logistics, mm. I don't know. But we had a very good experience in my year, definitely. Mm. So they got us mm. over the line. And then of course people began to get sick. So they asked for volunteers to help in icus and it's a job called proning so for people who don't know what that is if you were very sick with covid some people needed to be on ventilators and it helped to move them around so basically to lie them on their tummy for a few Mm. hours so our job was to go into icu and help the anesthetists and the icu nurses in positioning the patients appropriately so obviously we're not doctors we're not qualified to look after them but what we did have was i suppose medical experience and know-how and knowledge and understood what the equipment was and understood when the doctor said do this or don't do that or if the nurse asked us to you know mm. adjust something we knew we could do that well that we'd mm. have to be supervised mm. so that was our job for the months of I think April and most of May and it was such wow. it was it was scary at first and then you kind of began to like is the wrong word but it was mm. nice to know that you were contributing a little bit yeah people absolutely out, and you were learning a lot I mean I found respiratory medicine i did not enjoy it but by the end of that i understood a lot more which made it easier to enjoy you know Mm -hmm. and um you learn by doing and you learn by seeing and the doctors were very kind they understood that we were coming in as well and they kind of gave their time when they could as well and it was one of those lifetime experiences that i really hope i never have to repeat but i'm Mm. glad i did it
0: that makes so much sense. And I'm sure like as a country anyway, I remember hearing a lot of people hearing about that and it was, you know, there was a huge public reaction to that and it was so appreciated because it's a very brave thing to do. It really is, you know, like and no one knew what was going to happen. No one, everyone was seeing pictures of Italy and the mm. poor, poor patients over there and the shortage they had of ICU equipment. And it was all about the ICU capacity at the time. and um, I can only imagine how stressful that was. I remember you doing a post about it around that time um and just having so much respect for you guys doing it and you're right like I mean I remember hearing about the final meds having their exams pushed forward by various numbers of weeks or months and the stress of like I I would have had a proper like floods of tears that would have been my approach to that happening to me so Oh.
1: yeah which I think would have been a natural approach and I'm sure that probably yeah. happened to a few of the poor things as well but mm-hmm. then they just had no choice they just had yeah. to do it and when I really felt for them I think when I, I my heart nearly broke for them was obviously they had to have everything online their graduation yeah. you know yeah. results day uh, all that huge kind of milestones all, yeah and they were doing it from their sitting room or whatever and you mm-hmm. could see them sending in photos of you know wearing some of them I managed to get access to caps and gowns some of yeah. them lived within 5K of the Royal College of Surgeons. So they were able to come in from Rannell or ever wearing a cap mm. and get a photo outside. And i are just like, oh, you poor things, because the degree is so hard.
0: It's so, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's like leaving, sir, 2020. Like, it, it's a huge milestone in your life.
1: Yeah. And you're just, and, you know, you've got such a support system. Most people have family, friends who push you mm. over that line. Mm. Of that, and, you know, people who've cooked for you and. You yeah know, you know forgiving you when you've been a cranky mare upstairs trying to get you stuff and <laughs> the days as for them as it is for you and yeah. you know to not have that moment where you got to wear your nice dress and you know pick up that certificate f- from the doctor who you know yeah. helps you over that line it was it was really really sad and I really hope that they do get something eventually it'll never replace mm-hmm. it and it's just one of and look we say it was really really sad it's still a first world problem compared to some of the sad people had to bear in 2020 totally. but I just think it's a milestone and I just feel so bad that they've lost it so I hope something happens
0: yeah absolutely I did a really
1: good job I remember they caught up a lovely video they created a video link for them and like I was there nearly sniveling watching it oh
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, god no honestly the resilience of all of you guys is is so impressive um and just was speaking of resilience. I'd love to kind of just move on to the last topic I wanted to talk to you about, which was sport and mental health, because I know this is something that you've posted a lot about. Well, sport and health in general, but particularly mental health, because we we know, I think many of us would know um, you know, even vaguely of, of the benefits exercise, you know, whether it's aerobic or resistance exercise holds for our physical health. But I think many don't realise how important it is for our mental health as well.
1: Yeah, we don't. And not only and even worse when we do know it, we pretend we don't know it and act mm-hmm. like it doesn't exist. And we put everything, everything in front of it. Like I remember actually, and I'm still learning all of this all the time and I'm still learning different techniques. I'm very good at preaching, giving people advice, but I'm not great at following it myself. at times. <laughs> I remember Around this time last year, I saw Laura Dowling. I don't know if you know the fabulous pharmacist on Instagram. Mm, yeah. She put up a photo of her kitchen and it looked like a bombsite. And she <laughs> said, it doesn't matter. I'm going out and getting my exercise done. That's more important to me. The laundry will be done at some point. Yeah. And I remember thinking that is such a good tip. And it sounds so basic because I think women in particular, and if you're a mother, you know, you've got kids Mm -hmm. to mind, you've got a house to keep. And even if the husband is brilliant at helping out, it still, I think, falls on the mother to fix things when they're not done properly, you Mm -hmm.
0: know? Yeah.
1: And I was like, that is such a great approach. You know what? Laundry will always be there. You know, housework will always be there. If you can't afford a cleaner, you're going to have to do it yourself and that's just life. But you know what? Mm -hmm. If you do the laundry today, it's only going to be there again two days time. Mm -hmm. And like you taking 10 minutes out, go outside and go on a quick power walk for those 10 minutes is going to make the day much easier on you it's going to make it easier for you to factor in time to do the laundry and Mm -hmm. it was just such a simple thing and i remember i've taken that to heart and the amount of times this place looks like a bonsai i (laughs) have to take a picture and i send it to her and i say i'm going out because this is the message i keep trying to get to people Mm 10 minutes that's all you need 10 minutes will improve your day. And Mm -hmm. who does not have 10 minutes? We all have it, but we're choosing. And I think women in particular, we give those 10 minutes over to children, to houses, to husbands, to lives, to careers. And Mm -hmm. we just need to be a little bit more selfish and actually reframe it and say, I'm not being selfish. I'm doing this for me. And by doing this for me, I'm doing it for my home and my family. By taking these 10 minutes, it will make me a better person. Why not? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I 100% agree. And it is, you're right. It's one of those things that really goes on the back burner. And I think maybe this might be my own skewed view, but I do think that even though I don't like the phrase lockdown one and two, um, in this country have have shown people um the benefits of getting outside for a walk. Like I honestly am such a proponent of walking. I think it's an incredible exercise. It's very meditative, it's been a, a real lifesaver for me personally, but it's it's something that a lot of people can do and it's something we can do without going to a gym or mm. you know, you can do it with people. Um you can be social with it. You can go on a podcast or music, um, and I think the key thing as well is, like, it's obviously people can't necessarily exercise the way they want to at the moment. But finding the form of movement that you enjoy, I think, is one of the most valuable things people can do because that's what people will—you'll you know, you'll actually want to do it as opposed to thinking of it as another thing to add yeah. to the list, along with the laundry or the cleaning or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I think this is again where the people who organise our country, be they politicians, healthcare whatever the people who do employers we need to get better at facilitating our population Mm -hmm. and getting getting this right as well i mean like i get it it's all very good to be preaching going a walk every day but if your schedule is so jam-packed trying to get everything done and the Mm. house the road outside is dark there's no footpath there's nowhere nearby to go for a walk there's nowhere safe if you're a woman you don't feel safe walking at night Mm, you mm. know if we don't facilitate life in a way that allows people to do that, like we've, we're all seeing over the last few months stories of employers, despite the fact that there's a pandemic that can kill people, are mm. still compelling employees to come into work. Now, mm. that's not taking your employees' well-being to heart. You're creating mm. a whole pile of stress for that person. You're taking time from their day. And the beauty, mm. if there is a good thing to come from this pandemic, is that it freed up a lot of time for people, like community yeah. time.
0: Yeah, so definitely,
1: I remember when everything went online for me, I made a, I made a huge effort to ensure that, those two hours that I used to spend commuting would be used for me, a bit of me time. So that meant I caught up on study and it meant I went outside a bit more often. And the thing is with exercise, people equate it with how they look. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. when you do that, you're not going to create a habit. You need to create a feeling. And if you exercise to feel good, when you feel good, you're more likely to do things to help you look good. So, but it can't be about looking. If you, it's about looks or weight, you're never going to keep up with it. And it's not good for your mental health. It's thing could to be detrimental to your mental health.
0: Mm -hmm. but exactly if
1: you're moving to feel good it is good for your head it is good for your body and then you find yourself doing a bit more of it so the person who used to maybe go for a one stroll once a week if you build up to four or five times a week within a few months without any effort or trying you suddenly notice that your genes fit a bit better and that's a small collateral effort but beyond that what you've Mm. done is you've created a headspace for yourself You've unbeknownst to yourself, made yourself more resilient against the bad things that happen during a day. And the more resilient you are against the small bad things means that you're less likely. Not always. It can't insulate you completely, but it means you're Mm. less likely to develop depressive disorders or issues with anxiety or confidence. Mm. It just helps insulate you. It doesn't mean you won't get it. And it doesn't mean anyone who suffers from these things hasn't done anything to help themselves. But it just means if you can get yourself into a good place, you're you're a lot less likely to get it or if you do get it you'll suffer a little less which i think is worth all of us trying for that kind of insulation effect
0: absolutely and as i said the key is like there can be so much pressure as well through social media to say oh this person's doing crossfit or my best friend said she's running five miles a day for all of level five or whatever and like the key thing i think personally because like again we're all prone to a bit of comparisonitis but you know, what do you enjoy? And as you said, you're creating a feeling like what makes you feel good. If running doesn't make you feel good, don't run. Like I haven't run in about two years. I used to run loads, but I was running to counter stress and actually was just kind of adding stress to stress. Mm. Um, so I took up walking, took a break from running and I haven't really felt the need to go back. And sometimes I'll get a little bit, not triggered. I don't really want to use that word, but you know, a little bit, if I see other people, I'm like, oh, maybe I should be running. And then I kind of st- take a step back and go, where did that feeling come from? and what's making you feel good right now you know and knowing what makes you feel good and what makes you want to do it again doesn't have to be the same as someone else or whatever person you follow on social media Um yeah you know it's something Absolutely. about yeah like I've taken actually a lot of a step back from social media sharing exercise that I do bar like my my views of going when I want to go for a walk I think people enjoy seeing those but I do I love them Good I'm glad to hear that I just think that I used to share like I used to overuse exercise for for stress management definitely and that was that was not great for my health or physical or mental but uh a lot of what I was sharing in terms of workouts was for validation not really inspiration and that's something that thankfully maturity has helped me to realize And I don't really do it anymore and someone messaged me a while back being like you don't really share workouts anymore And thinking I was like I'm not a personal trainer I'm I'm a human being I'm a doctor I'm just trying Like, I'll communicate the benefits of exercise, but doing so in an enjoyable and sustainable way uh, or in a way that we can create community. You know, Um, I think the, the key for me is enjoyment, not punishment.
1: Yes, absolutely. And one of my big bugbears as well, I think being shared on social media. Or before and after photos yeah and i know why people do it and i get it and i think if i had lost a lot of weight i'd be delighted with myself and i'd be very Mm -hmm. proud of myself and it is a huge achievement because to lose weight in the world we live in is so hard and anybody Mm -hmm. who manages it is really they're going against a tide that's fighting against them every single day so Mm -hmm. fair play absolutely but the thing is by doing that you're you're suddenly you're telling yourself whether you realize it or not and you're certainly telling people around you that people in your before picture are less than so anyone mm-hmm. who looks like your before is not as good or mm-hmm. you're telling yourself that that person was less than the person you are now and you're putting too much of your self-worth on what you look like whereas ideally your motivator should be you know i started this in january and i felt this and this today i feel that because mm-hmm. we hold on to feelings and they can't nobody can judge a feeling and nobody can feel bad in a feeling comparison you know what mm-hmm. i mean yeah. Whereas when you put yeah. those kind of photos up and you're setting yourself up for a fall as well, because all of a sudden, you know, if you regain a bit of weight, like if you just got sick and you spent maybe two weeks on the couch and then maybe it took you another week to build up the energy to go out mm, or, you know, mm-hmm. or if you got sick, you know, some illnesses oh, the only thing you can really fancy or cu- is toast or maybe, you know, you know, fattening fast food. Like for me, for example, yeah. if I get a cold. I need a really heavy curry, to get food, for example, <laughs> or if I'm feeling in any way nauseous, for some reason, the only things I can hold down might be crackers and a bit of butter on them, you know, and that's not officially a good diet. And then you start feeling bad about yourself and you start worrying about the weight that you might be putting back on or the muscle mass you're losing. And that's not a good place to be. And it shouldn't, your body shouldn't make you feel that way in your exercise mm-hmm. regime and your eating regime. So what you should be doing is, you know, I try and I don't always succeed. But, you know, I try like this morning I went around, uh, I was doing my, my weekly shop in Lidl and I put in stuff into the trolley that food that I know will fuel me. And mm. also food that, that the trap I've fallen into the last few weeks because I'm on placement. Um, I might come home late and there's no food in and I mm. decided, right, I'm not going to be that person now. So I bought a few ready meals. Are they absolutely mm. wonderful for my health? No. Are they going to feed me that evening? And am I going to feel good of food in my stomach so I can study?
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So food
1: is fuel. And food yeah. is also sometimes a source of comfort for people and you need to know, like, you know, why am I eating this? How am I doing that? How am I feeling? Mm. You know, and that's much more sustainable than a before and after picture or a picture of you when you're unhappy with yourself on the fridge. I mean, that's not good for your head. You're looking at a mm. photo of yourself saying that's not a good person. So mm. I would love if there was one thing people would do was to stop the before and after photos. It's It's not good for you. And you might feel good about it short term, but it's not going to help you long term. And it's certainly not going to help the people you're probably hoping to inspire. And like mm-hmm. you said, I think part of it is validation as well. And like if you've made progress for your health and you've lost weight as part of that progress, you shouldn't need my validation. You should know it yourself in your own head that you're helping yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's stopping and checking the need to share and thinking like what I try and do is at least I share so much less than I used to. And I, as a result, like I. I don't, uh, I don't see exponential growth in my followers, but that's not why I share. Like I share, um, I suppose, because something I think will add to my platform or benefit people. And mm. it doesn't matter if that's 16,000 people or 20 or whatever, like, you know, or five, you know, if, if it benefits one person, that's fine and that's enough. But I always have to be conscious of, is there a chance that this might not benefit someone and it might actually potentially harm them if they're looking at it the wrong way? I mean, yes. if we all need to be very conscious, particularly now when we're all online a lot more, of yeah. what we're sharing um, yeah. and
1: also on the other hand and with that as well comes responsibility of the mm. user on social media like you're over 18 you've signed up to the terms and conditions like try to critically look at posts if saying i've lost weight by eating only this or by following this plan mm. like engage the critical thinking brain which is something we're not as good at as we used to be and i think yeah. we need to get better at that and again maybe mm. working in journalism helps me a bit more than that and you could just take a step back and say now oh, come on now She lost all that weight because all she drank during the week was warm water and a bit of cabbage. I mean, yeah, Mm. she's lost weight. She's going to gain it again in a week's time and it's not good for her health physically or mentally. And I think a lot of us aren't engaging that brain. And Mm. I think that's something we all need to get better at, too.
0: Definitely. We need to. Yeah, it's important. There's so much misinformation online and taking the time to to check and asking, is there is there an agenda to this? Is there a promotion Mm. going on here? Like which happens a lot, particularly with. Um, the, the kind of influencer culture that we see on social media. Um, Absolutely. More trust I could keep you here all day to talk to you. It's been so much fun to have this conversation, Um, but I, I'm conscious of your time. So I'm going to finish up with one more question for you, um, which is something I try and ask every guest. Um, so my handle on my, on my Instagram, my blog is called The Irish Balance, and it's a bit of a misnomer because I think that as cheesy as it sounds, balance isn't really a destination. It's It's Kind of a path and it's it's a bit of a journey really um because mm-hmm. it's something that will we, we'll swing both ways in and i think knowing your happy place sometimes comes from going to either end of of the extreme sometimes too that's at least been my experience um so i'd love to know what gives you a moment of balance in your day
1: hmm. that's a good question i think for me uh, the first thing was accepting that i won't always have balance and i have to accept mm-hmm. that there are times that Balance is not going to exist and that's okay. I'm in survival mode and that's just how it is. So Mm -hmm. I think once I got that right in my head and I'm able to look at my week and say, next week is going to be disaster for me and I have to Mm. accept that with in something the week after. But my daily balance, my daily moment of balance, believe it or not, is normally at the moment is sitting in the car driving somewhere. Mm, That's my time. My time, I get to listen. I get to think about things that I want to think about. I play the music I want I have the car at the temperature I want, not, you know, <laughs> so I'm not too hot, I'm not too cold. Yeah. Um, I get to listen to podcasts. I can catch up on phone calls with people. And I found that's a really good way to stay connected with people. That's when I make mm. my hello, how are you phone calls? They're not mm. normally the business type phone calls. They are, how are you getting on? Like i call my mm. friends at home. Mm. And usually by the end of that journey, instead of being stressed and sitting in traffic, I've caught up with my friends from home. I've mm. listened to the podcast I've wanted to listen to. And I like to arrive refreshed and I've noticed since I've started that habit because I'm doing a lot mm. of driving at the moment because with sports psychology and mm. championship coming into winter means I'm driving to hospital and to teens and stuff. I yeah. found that I come out of the car now refreshed rather than stressed. And I think that's a pretty good thing to have daily.
0: <laughs> that's such an interesting answer. I love that. I think that's so interesting. Um, and I, I, I can totally relate to that. When I go from, I can't really do it at the moment, obviously, but when I drive home, which is Dublin for me, and I go from Dublin to Galway, um, it's obviously a fairly straight road. Like it's, it's pretty easy for the drive, but it's, it's a lovely two hours twenty or whatever it is. Because if I've got a good audio book or a couple of podcasts saved, um, it's, it's so enjoyable just to have that time, just to sit and listen or listen to music but even just or the time as you said to think like I was saying this to a friend the other day it's so hard we fill our brains with so many things and taking the time to actually sit back and think about what your thoughts are on a topic or what's going on in the world or how you're actually feeling and taking the time to check in it can be really hard when we're always going somewhere doing something or filling time to just be bored to let the mind wander Um, and you're, you're so right staying connected is so key as well and phone calls are definitely a lifesaver for that
1: Yeah, so that's for me. I'm not sure it'll work for everyone. And I suppose I'm the lucky position in that. uh, I know we're in level five at the moment, Mm. but I still allow drive everywhere because I'm driving Mm. in and I'm involved Mm -hmm. in elite sport. And that's a position of privilege. I never thought I'd be delighted to say, yes, I have to drive for hours and I'm delighted. (laughs) But, you know, make the most of it. So I just think, you know, find that moment that gives you time your mind to wander because I think that's a very mm-hmm. important point We're, we don't allow that and you know what if I didn't allow my mind wander a few years ago I never would have started off this medical degree I never mm. would have started off sports psychology and when you wander you never know where you might end up and I think that's a pretty cool way to be.
0: I love that we'll finish with that so thanks so much Morteza I so enjoyed this conversation and um, where can people find you on social media um, and if you have any content that you want to flag or um, anything else yeah. you'd like to share just let us know.
1: You can find me on, as Vincent Brown used to call it, the Twitter machine on um, yes. at Motor TNC. And also that's my fame Instagram handle. I have a sport and performance and exercise psychology website as well, which is performancemt.ie. You can find me there. And uh, if you're into your podcast and if you're into sports psychology, I did a 10 episode series of podcasts earlier this year called the sports psychologist. It goes through a lot of the common themes, And a lot of times now I might get DMs from people interested in the subject and it's great. I can just copy and Mm paste the link to the podcast. So if you're into that kind of stuff, feel free to have a poke around there. And um, I'm hoping actually to do a new series in it soon. Once I have time, once school lets me and once uh, life. I know. (laughs) You
0: need a 25th hour in the day. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. I absolutely so enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad you were able to fit us into your busy schedule in fairness i know you've lots of study to do um so listen thanks so much guys for tuning in please do tag myself and more Trasa if you enjoyed the episode and um, tags on your instagram stories or leave a comment on the podcast whichever you prefer and as always if you'd like to do leave us a glowing rating because it helps the podcast get out there more so thanks so much for listening and i'll talk to you guys next time
1: bye